You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, although I do want to continue having a little bit of fun here and there, we got some more clips. Um, We do have to start shifting our focus over to the 49ers, so I will try my best to kind of stitch in a couple things here and again. Um... Again, to the best of my abilities, but unfortunately, there is just too much to do in too little amount of time. Uh, I do want to start. I mean, been kind of ignoring a lot because I've been trying to get to um, all the the juicy content. We've got kind of a lot to get to that's been going on this week. Um, want to start with some NFL news. First of all, as it turns out, uh, Mike McCarthy will not be fired. Now, to be clear, I do think that's the right decision. I am shocked by the decision. But I think it's the right decision. And the reason that I'm shocked is, as I already said, I thought it was a guarantee that he was getting fired just based on the reaction of Dallas. Um, when you have an owner saying this was the most embarrassing loss I've ever experienced in my 400-year career, on top of, you know, again, I haven't been super immersed in all the ins and outs, but apparently the Dallas Cowboys fan base and everything else, and even the media seemed to think that he was kind of hanging on by a thread, which shocked me, but you put those two things together, and I'm thinking it's a, it's a certainty. But apparently, Jerry Jones took 24 hours to calm down, came back and said, no, that's stupid, which, again, I think is the right decision. He's gotten this team up and ready to go for a long time. Now, is there a question of not being able to get him ready for the playoffs? Perhaps. We as Packer fans ask that question many, many times. Or, as I've talked about before, maybe it's not so much um, that as it is just it's hard to win. It's just hard to win, and and we know having watched that game, although Dallas did kind of you know struggle in some areas, we know that they got beat by a team that was just freaking better than them. Even I mean, listen, I said before, if Dallas and Green Bay play at their best, I'm not positive who wins. Like if you get 100% zero mistakes all the way, I I thought maybe Dallas would not. Watching that back, I don't think so. I think Green Bay wins. If that's, I mean, obviously that's not even 100%, but if if that's what 100% like the the peak offense can look like. Yeah, I don't I don't think Dallas are really that's why I said we have the number one quarterback and the number one offense in the NFL, and I believe that. Now defensively it becomes kind of a, a complicated thing, but I don't think a lot of the issues that I saw were on defense. You can say, what about the blown coverages? Well, I saw 
One of the times Romeo Dobbs was wide open, he broke a guy's ankles. That wasn't a blown coverage. One of the times, you know, when Musgrave was wide open, you had like a quadruple fake in which everybody was essentially accounted for. The defense had to account for a run, a pass to the left, a, a, a pass back to the other side for a screen. All that stuff was covered. And then Matt LaFleur added another layer to it and leaked out the tight end. And there was nobody left to cover for him. Another time I saw Christian Watson had drawn the, the attention of the defense away and Romeo Dobbs ran across to the other side. So, I mean, it's not to say that somebody didn't make a mistake somewhere, but this is scheme, this is route running, this is execution. It's not just guys are just running go routes and, you know, somebody just fell off. Like, oh, I thought you were getting them. No, no, I, you, I thought you were getting them. This is Matt LaFleur putting on a freaking clinic is what it is. So, so Yeah. Mike McCarthy's staying. As for Dak Prescott, um, I, I don't know, but I'm going to make a prediction based on what I've already talked about, and that is he's staying too. And that's for a couple reasons. Number one, similar to the coach, yeah, he had a bad day in the postseason. He was up there with one of the best, if not the best quarterbacks, right? I mean, it's if you look at for the entire season, you're kind of looking at Brock Purdy and Dak Prescott. Probably Brock, but you know, Dak, Dak was in the conversation. Letting go of a guy like that in hopes that you can find somebody better than the number two quarterback so that you can have a better chance of winning in the postseason seems like a flawed strategy, especially when you're picking at the back of the first round. There's nobody that's going to be floating around a free agency that's better. At best, you're going to get Kirk Cousins, who is just kind of a lesser version of what you got from Dak this year, a guy that's like a top 10, possibly top five quarterback in, in a good year that hasn't gotten it done in the postseason, which, by the way, is most quarterbacks except for the part where you're maybe the best quarterback in football. That's a rare title given to very few quarterbacks. On top of that, there's the contract situation. Uh, 2024, even if they trade post-June 1, to kind because of, if, they, if they trade him next year prior to the start of the new league year, it's a $60 million uh, slap in the mouth. If you wait until post-June 1, it's $25 million, with an additional you know, 25 the next year. Actually, I think it would be... Uh, 36. So they'd be $25 million this year and then $36 million in 2025. And all that just because we hate Dak? I don't think so. So I'm sorry, Dallas fans. I know you're throwing a hissy fit, but honestly, it gives you the absolute best chance of getting back next year and possibly winning a Super Bowl next year that Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott are staying. And I know you don't want to believe that because you want to believe it's their fault and that you're, you're so talented that the only, because again, this is what we do. This is what fans like to do. We got to pinpoint like the thing. And if we just fix the thing, it's an automatic Super Bowl, which of course is nonsense. Nobody is guaranteed a Super Bowl, but we got to pretend it's, it's, it's Dak. He just, he can't get it done and I'm tired of it. And it's Mike McCarthy. And if we just get rid of them, then we get a Super Bowl. We'll be fine. Then it's Super Bowls all day. But these, these two are just, they're so unbelievably inept because you must be, because the only reason we could ever lose to a team like the Packers, the only reason we could have so many years, which I think it's, we're talking about like what, six years? Is that what it is? Or is it four out of the last six? It's not that many. <laughs> so it was to, to think that you, you should be guaranteed a Super Bowl in that stretch is nonsense. So it's actually unfortunate for the Packers that Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott are, are coming back. However, if they don't get it done, that may not be the case after next year. And I don't think Dak Prescott can replicate what he did. I mean, it was just such an unbelievable, what, like six-game stretch in the middle of the season that kind of, you know, made him look like what he wasn't really, which is why, again, I said that was kind of your, not your one shot, but it's going to feel like it was your best shot. And it was, it was your best shot. And then you ran into a freaking buzzsaw. Um, Bill Belichick, I uh, was a little late to the news, but 
I wasn't even sure that he was going to be looking for a coaching job. I kind of assumed it because, you know, again, the owner of the uh, Patriots had made a comment about, you know, we wish you the best of luck, except when you're playing against us. But I thought maybe that was just him saying it as a, as a possibility. Apparently, Bill Belichick's already out there doing interviews. So Bill Belichick met with the Atlanta Falcons. He had a first interview, and they already have a second interview scheduled. I don't know if you've ever done interviews, but that's kind of a big deal. The second interview is, uh, it depends on your job. Sometimes it's an interview, and then, okay, we'll give you the job. But some of the like bigger jobs, there's like a second, a third. So um, especially just a couple of days later. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Falcons want to lock him down. So they want to like compress the timeline for sure. Bill Belichick will probably step away and weigh his options. There's probably some, I shouldn't say probably, but potentially some playoff teams that might be looking to make a change. You know, I mean, if Andy Reid steps down, I mean, that could be an option. I'm sure that's um, not massively likely, but I, I heard that it was a possibility. But, um, you know, Dallas, I, I guess, was a big possibility. But now that they've decided not to, maybe maybe the Falcons are sort of a as good as you're going to get situation. I don't know. But uh, apparently the teams have been, uh, excuse me, the Falcons have been more and more kind of on the radar as a team that are uh, legitimate for Bill Belichick. Uh, a couple of the things in terms of, I mean, they mentioned why the Falcons would be interested in Bill Belichick. I mean, it, it's somewhat self-explanatory, but apparently uh, Arthur Blank, since he bought the team, has never hired a head coach with any NFL head coaching experience. And maybe that's kind of a negative. But as for uh, Bill Belichick, they're talking about how they've had back-to-back-to-back top 10 picks that they've used on uh, skill players. You know, they got Bijan, they got Drake London, they got Kyle Pitts. They got to find a quarterback, but if they have an opportunity to, to go up and get a quarterback this year, especially if they're willing to let him have some personnel decisions, which is probably not the best decision, but, you know, if you want him bad enough. So, I mean, it's not as uh, exciting as we would have expected, but at the same time, dude's 66 years old. He wants to play. He hasn't had like a good receiver in like a decade or basically ever in his career, aside from like Amendola and stuff. <laughs> I mean, he, he had a couple little stints, but it was always like the quarterback working with decent but not elite receivers. Although he did have the tight ends, I guess. But plus you're moving to a warm weather place. You're in a dome. You're kind of halfway to Florida, you know, <laughs> just saying. Uh, there's also talk about Nick Sirianni possibly being fired. I also think that that's... Um, that would be kind of silly considering what a great job he's done, potentially looking at some changes on the defensive coordinator side or something. I don't really know, but I would be surprised if he ends up getting let go, but we'll see. Um, something interesting that I know a lot of people have mentioned, and I, I don't think it's going to be a thing, but I think we also have to acknowledge that Aaron Jones is sort of on the way out, and the Packers certainly seem to want really good running back talent. Plus, there is the ties with Matt LaFleur. A uh, report came out about Derrick Henry and the fact that he is going to be moving on off of the Tennessee Titans. And apparently what he's looking for, like a lot of guys as they get toward the end of their careers, he's looking for the best shot of winning a Super Bowl. Now, you look around the landscape, um, some better teams. You could say the 49ers, assuming the, the Packers don't beat them. But still, I mean, that's that's an option. But they just got Christian McCaffrey. They're not going to go with that. So that's kind of off the table. And so you got, what, the Ravens and the Texans. It seems unlikely, but I, I don't think it's impossible. And just if you really think about it, especially since, you know, we're not spending money on tight end and wide receiver, which gives us some flexibility in the skill positions to do things that otherwise maybe we would not. If you're not going to, if you want to spend money on offense, but you're not going to spend money at wide receiver because you already have that, and you're not going to spend money at tight end. If you add a guy like Derrick Henry, who can be sort of like what we wanted A.J. Dillon to be, a guy that can carry most of the load so that we can keep Aaron Jones fresh for the later in the season so that he can perform like he's performing now, 
because he's you know been hurt all year and hasn't been playing much, but has the ability of Derrick Henry as opposed to A.J. Dillon. Um, I'll just say it's, it's, again, unlikely, but I'm certainly not putting it at zero. Anyway, switching it up, moving to some NFC North news. Bears have been working with, uh, working through a bunch of interviews with offensive coordinators. Apparently, the newest on the list is Eagles assistant Marcus Brady. They've had a couple different interviews uh, the last few. I don't know how long, but definitely need to keep an eye on that so we can get a little bit of an insight into what direction the Bears are going to be going. Might also tip their hand a little bit in terms of their decision at quarterback, although, again, as I've mentioned before, I think that decision has already been made. Uh, Which brings me to the next thing, which is um, there was an article by The Athletic, uh, Kevin Fishbane and Adam Jans, a couple Bears guys, the title of it, which is more or less what I wanted to mention, Bears mock draft reaction. If they take a quarterback at number one, it is definitely Caleb Williams. Now, I don't know, you know, how 100% definite anything is, especially January 19th or 17th at the writing of this article. But we kind of are in that start gathering intelligence phase of the draft. And um, I would say it's, you know, in my mind, a 93% certainty that they're drafting a quarterback. And you've got the Bears guys saying if they draft a quarterback, it's going to be Caleb Williams, which, you know, puts me at 85% they're drafting Caleb Williams. But uh, part of this article here, it says, The athletic draft analyst Dane Brugler dropped his second mock draft on Tuesday with the Bears deciding to move on from fields and selecting Caleb Williams. Here's our reaction to his picks at number one and nine, responding to some frequently asked questions, blah, blah, blah. Dane writes that other NFL teams believe that Ryan Poles will trade Justin Fields and take a quarterback. Now, we hear this stuff a lot, right? I mean, it's just it's just a reporter going into his little book of contacts and asking what they think is going to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are some inside inside information, but there could be. And these are also people that generally have some understanding. Now, remember, this is the same group. If you listen to the clip I played yesterday, when they went around and asked GMs and coaches what they thought about Jordan Love, they ranked him like way at the bottom. Like he just, he doesn't have it. He's not going to be good enough. He doesn't process the game, et cetera, et cetera. Just, just put that little caveat in there. But again, this, this, is, this is what everybody assumes. And like I said before, the fact that it's assumed that he is going to get maybe a second or third round pick for Justin Fields should tell you what the value is for Justin Fields. The fact that not a single team will give up a first round pick and potentially not one team out of the 31 other teams would be willing to give up a second round pick for Justin Fields. You want me to believe that the Bears would forego the number one overall pick quarterback? That that's how highly they think of Justin Fields? Okay. And then what Jan says, which I think is true, um, he says, the only way I see a tradeback scenario shaking out is if the Bears have made Daniels and McCarthy all graded closely. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be that. You could have a situation similar to last year where it's, it's a question of, I have the top two quarterbacks graded closely, and if, if they want or can move back one spot, they could probably get a massive haul. I mean, if Washington's looking to come up one spot, which I'm sure they'd be happy to, and they get uh, Caleb, and then obviously they would take Drake May or, or, or whoever ends up being left. left. Oh, I mean, it's, that's the other benefit is it's possible they take Drake May, and you still get the guy you want. If I'm, if I, I mean, it would be insane to not try that. I mean, that's, that's what the Bears got duped into doing. They traded up from two to one to go get Mitch Trubisky. It would be insane for them to not talk to Washington. And make sure you do not trade Justin Fields. 
because essentially you want Washington to think that you're willing to take calls from New England, from, you know, Arizona, from the Giants, from Tennessee and Atlanta. You've got all these people blowing up your phone willing to offer you multiple first round picks. So if you want it, you better offer us a lot. And then you get that trade, you trade fields, you draft Drake May and you move on with your life. But finally, in in Bears news, Jalen Johnson, their corner, is seeking to become the highest paid cornerback, which obviously is fantastic news for us. Anytime your rival has to dish out money, it's, it's a good thing because it gives them less opportunity to spend money. Now, the Bears have not really been able to prove that they're capable of doing anything with the money. But the real benefit here is that this, this, is, this is such a classic Bears thing. They invest in guys that, that break out for one year, then they get paid, and then they fall off. J- uh, Jalen Johnson's grades have been 54, 64, and 63. This year, it's a 91. So when, I, when we talk about Jair, like he had that one good year and then he probably will never have a year like that again, we're talking about he went from like the 15th or 10th best corner to the number one corner and then he fell back down to being um, a number one but not necessarily top five corner. This is, this is a guy going from a bad corner for three years to the number one corner in the NFL and then probably back down to being a bad corner. This happens to the Bears all the time, and the timing could not be any worse because now he's looking for a new contract. And either they're going to pay it or somebody else will. And so the Bears are going to be forced to pay top money for another DB that is not going to produce anywhere near what they need. They did this already with their uh, their safety. Except they were so stupid, they did it in his second year. He he. So in his first year, he had a 68 grade. His second year, he jumped up to a 93. He was the number one safety in all of football, largely on the back of six interceptions. They paid him a stupid amount of money. Guess what happened? He dropped right back down to a 67. Then it went down to a 59, then a 59 again. In 2022, uh, the first year under the new uh, coach, he kind of had a little bit of a bounce back up to a 72 or 76 grade, again, on the back of a lot of interceptions. He had four picks. And then when the picks went away this year, he went right back to being a bad safety. 58 PFF grade. He's, he's a bad safety. Eddie Jackson has never been anything other than bad except for two years. And he got massively paid. And they're going to do it again with Jalen Johnson. Now, I don't know that he's going to be the highest paid corner, but they're going to pay out the wazoo for a guy that's never been anything other than bad, had one big breakout year, which doesn't even mean that he was consistently good because he wasn't. Half of his games were good. He had four games in the 80s and one in the 90s. And that, that's what propelled him to where he is. But half of the games are kind of like what you usually get from them. 60, 60, 60, 60, 50, 50. So it's the highs and the lack of like massive lows that kind of propelled him up to where he is, especially this three-game stretch, weeks 12, 14, 15. 93, 83, 85. Prior to that, the guy never had two good games in a row. Well, he kind of did. So, you know, it's one thing when a rival pays a guy that's really, really good. It, it, it's, it's a bittersweet thing. It's like, okay, good. It's going to occupy a little bit of their cap, but it also sucks that they lock down this really good player. This is an inst- instance where they're probably going to be paying a ton of money and they're not going to get anywhere near the return. You're upset with where Jair's at? Just wait, because this dude wants to reset the Jair contract and he probably will. And boy, oh boy. Maybe he stays as good, I don't know, but it's just, we've seen this before. This is the same thing I said about the linebacker they went out and paid. The guy was bad for like five years. He had one breakout elite year. They paid him as the highest paid linebacker in football to come over and play, and he's been terrible this year. They pay people for the exceptions. Anyways, final NFC North note, and then we'll take a break here. 
apparently a uh, potential Russell La- Russell Wilson landing spot is Minnesota. Now, I just cannot imagine this happening. I cannot imagine Minnesota would be this stupid. There's a small part of me that has actually a, a high level of respect for Minnesota. Maybe it's just because the other two teams are Chicago and Detroit, which have historically been just complete jokes of franchises. And so there's some level of competency in, in Minnesota. But I would be stunned if they are this stupid. NFL Insider names Vikings as potential Russell Wilson landing spot. Quote, don't be surprised if Wilson is intrigued by Minnesota. Now, I will say it's not entirely impossible, although it is unlikely. I mean, it all comes down to Kirk Cousins, and it sounds like Minnesota wants to move forward with Kirk Cousins again. However, I mean, this has been such a terrible death cycle for the Minnesota Vikings. These one-year contracts that are fully guaranteed that they just can't seem to get out of. Kirk Cousins is getting older. We've, we saw with the whatever is called quarterback series on Netflix, I mean, he's, he's getting old and his body is breaking down. And this year he tore his Achilles and he's going to be coming off of surgery. I mean, he's not going to hold up. He's not going to win you a Super Bowl. It's not going to happen. Now, it may not with Russell Wilson, but let's just go from step A to step B here. So if you decide to move on from Kirk Cousins, what are you going to do? Well, the, the first thing that would ideally happen is you draft a quarterback. But assuming that doesn't happen and Russell Wilson is genuinely looking out there and he tells you that you are his number one option. Would you not take a swing? I mean, his, his, his contract price is going to go way down. I mean, what, what other option do you have other than just riding with the terrible quarterbacks you have, completely tanking, um, and hoping you can get a better quarterback next year? I don't know that there is a better option. So, I don't know, man. I just I find the, the whole situation to be slightly hilarious. Anyways, why don't we quickly take a break, and we'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. 
Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Yeah, easy for you to say, Wayne. It's a great morning for you because you sat right here at this desk on Friday and you all but guaranteed your Packers would win easily at my Cowboys. And you were so right. And I was so wrong to even remotely trust Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott as seven and a half point favorites at Jerry World where they had only won 16 straight games. Yesterday, the Dallas Cowboys got exposed as gutless, heartless, leaderless playoff frauds. Fraud, frauds. That was by far the most shocking and devastating and humiliating playoff loss in Dallas Cowboy history. My lowest moment ever as a lifelong diehard Cowboy fan. Not your typical fall on your face. This was all time, all time. <sighs> I threw all my Cowboy gear in the trash last night and it will stay there. Mike McCarthy has to go today. His replacement has to be, to me, Jim Harbaugh, not Bill Belichick. We'll get into that in just a few minutes. And there is no way Dak Prescott deserves a big contract extension now. Not after throwing two first-half interceptions, one a pick six, that led to Green Bay 27 to nothing before halftime. Before halftime. Not after Dak Prescott got into it early with CD and somehow made him mad. I didn't see that coming. Jordan Love is so much better than Dak. I'd love to see if Trey Lance can turn into Jordan Love. Now, would you believe I hope defensive coordinator Dan Quinn gets a head coaching job? Now I'm not so sure he will because how do you sell 27 to nothing? How do you sell 48 to 16 with six minutes left in the game? Micah Parsons is so overrated. He had the worst pass rush game of his entire career yesterday. Only one pressure, zero sacks, zero tackles for loss, one solo tackle, and one assist. Are, are you kidding me? January 14, 2024. A day that will live in cowboy infamy. Well, is that a beautiful clip or what? <laughs> Tell you what, I, I know we got to move off of Dallas and everything else, but I, I, I can't even imagine the amount of meltdowns that are happening when, you know, a day or two later, after screaming that everybody needs to go, you find out Mike McCarthy's staying. Like, they're not even really going to think about it. They must be just losing their freaking minds. Anyways, a couple other topics. Um, I wanted to play this for you as well. I had Eric uh, Rivera, who is at PacNation820. He wanted to send me this clip when he heard uh, I was ripping into all these people and everything they've been saying about the Packers. Here is Nick Wright in, I believe, September. Season. And then, speaking of vibes, Coach, best vibes in the league. Best vibes. Green Bay Packers. True. <laughs> Good young talent at wide receiver. Good running game. An underrated defense. A chip on their shoulder. A coach that has, as far as through uh, three years of his coaching career, one of the best winning percentages in NFL history. And a quarterback 
who has got to sit and learn for years. Will he be great? No. Will he be as good as Aaron was last year? That's not that hard. And I like the Green Bay Packers as kind of the scorned X winning the division. Wow. So, first of all, kudos to Nick Wright because all of that is essentially what we were all saying. I could blast him for saying, will he be elite? No, but I mean, that's more or less what we were all saying as well. Um, I mean, probably not. Most likely not. The the only caveat that I'll throw in here is, I mean, I've been listening to Nick Wright trash the Packers for weeks now. The issue, although I'm, I'm sure he deserve, he does deserve credit, and I'll give him credit for that, Every almost every single one of these guys has at some point or another bought into something. right? Colin Coward had one of the worst takes, anti-Jordan Love takes ever prior to the season. And he's one of the guys you want to dunk on immediately when Jordan Love does something well. Here's the thing, though. Do you know who one of the earliest believers in Jordan Love was? It was Colin Coward. These guys flip-flop so much on their opinions. (laughs) It's hard to pin anyone, especially these guys that do it daily. right? Richard Sherman, you can just destroy Richard Sherman because he's had one thing to say about... Well, I, I shouldn't even say... I don't know. I don't know what his thoughts were, maybe against the Eagles game, or what his thoughts were after they drafted Jordan Love. I don't know. Just like I don't know what Nick Wright said a month before this or a month after this or a week after this. I have no idea. But um, since I lumped him in with Colin Coward and his thoughts, I I will at least give him a shout out for at some point in September saying the Packers would win the NFC North. And he listed all the right reasons. So I'm not going to apologize to Nick Wright because, again, I've been listening to him trash the team for a long time. But um, I will give him credit for this take for sure. Another thing I wanted to bring up, and and this is absolute perfect timing, um, and maybe this is the reason the question was asked, I talked yesterday about the Bosa thing, and I laid out very clearly what it sounded like Bosa was saying, and I I don't really see how it's even necessarily disputable, unless he just kind of misspoke, but if you just look at the structure of his sentence, it's very obvious to me that what he was saying is, you know... um, Jordan Love is is playing really well, largely because he's playing within the structure of the offense. And as good as Aaron Rodgers was, and he was very good, you know, one of the downfalls that he had was that he got away from structure. And this is a case that all of us have been making. Again, in 2020, I made a video about how Jordan Love is an upgrade in that area. I made a whole film breakdown showing like side-by-side clips of, of Aaron Rodgers choosing not to throw the ball to open guys. And then Jordan Love were at, at, at Utah State because we didn't have any Green Bay clips at that point, but just how he's, I thought he would be a better fit for the system because he's just more rhythmic. He's just, it's just, it's, he's like a freaking robot. He just goes to the guy that's open all the time. Adam Stenovich was asked about this issue. Ryan Wood posted on uh, social media. He says, Packers offensive coordinator, Adam Stenovich on differences, having quarterback in Jordan Love, who runs the offense as called compared to quarterback in Aaron Rodgers, who regularly went off script on defense's pre-snap look. Now, first of all, I just want it noted that this was disputed that it was even a thing. And one of the things that I had mentioned is, as as great as it is to have a guy like Aaron Rodgers, and if you've been listening for a long time, you've heard me say this numerous times, as nice as it is to have a guy that makes adjustments, the problem is the entire point of this offense is to build off of previous plays. I'm going to call this now so that later we can call this. If you're constantly changing my plays, we can't do that. We can't have a cohesive four-quarter game plan. So it's not a matter of Matt LaFleur calling this, you know, start-to-finish game plan in which 
you know, we're able to manipulate you based on what we've done earlier. And we show you this and this, this hand trick because every play is just an individual play. It's Aaron Rodgers goes to the, goes to the line. He looks at the defense. And he says, I think this would be the best play call. So there's no coherence to anything. That might be the best individual play call, but there is a benefit to, to running a play, even if it's not the best play. And Aaron Rodgers refused to accept that. Here's what offensive coordinator Adam Senovich said. There definitely is value to that because, so first of all, first sentence, he acknowledges it's true. Just to get that out of the way. The idea that it's not true that that Rodgers doesn't play within the system just got destroyed in one sentence by the offensive coordinator of the Green Bay Packers. Real quick, let me read the question and then the very first sentence. Stenovich on the differences having a quarterback in love who runs the offense as called compared to a quarterback in Aaron Rodgers who regularly went off script based on the defense's pre-snap look. Quote, there definitely is a value to that. Because half the time when you get done with that drive, sometimes in past years, you just be trying to figure out what play was called. So Rodgers is calling plays at the line. The, the coaches don't know what it is. They're trying to figure it out. They're like, what? what? So he, he told it and they're trying to, so that they can try to build off of whatever Rodgers is doing. He goes on to say, so now we know what was supposed to happen. But with Aaron, he would see stuff and make checks and all that. And you didn't know what exactly was going to happen at the time. But with this, yeah, we're all kind of on the same page and going not to say that way wasn't good because we had great results with it. But this is uh, but this is nice because at least you can kind of build on offense around it. Build plays off plays. Exactly what I was saying for years. You build on it. You start with a plan so that you can set up things for later. You cannot do that when you have a quarterback just going to the line saying, I think they're running this, which means this is the best play to run in that situation. As the game progressed, hey, we do this. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. I'm quoting again. I think our communication on the sideline has been better just from that aspect of being able to, as the game progressed, have plays off plays and things like that. Yeah, that is a huge advantage this year. You want to know why they've been able to keep their foot on the gas? You want to know why they've been able to play into the fourth quarter and been so good down the stretch? Even early in the season when they were struggling, they were really good in the, th- in the second half. Why? Because they've had a cohesive game plan the whole time. It's not just one thing. You start here and you travel to here. You show them one thing and then you hit them with this. You set them up with the jab, jab and then you bring in the right hook. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally chess, not checkers. Not to say there's no long-term strategy in checkers, but that is the difference. Matt LaFleur is trying to play chess. He's trying to set you up six plays from now, 10 plays, two quarters from now. He wants every single play run to make sense based on all the other plays, to be one cohesive thing. Rodgers wanted to run individual plays, and and that's why he'd get mad with Matt LaFleur sometimes, because he'd run an individual play, and he would see it as an individual play, and it didn't work. He's like, well, that was stupid. It's like, okay, Rodgers, but we run that so we can run something else later. We can't, for example, completely get away from the run. We can't just abandon it because it's not working, because there's a purpose to it beyond what's happening. It's kind of like the whole Christian Watson conversation. You're just, you're just seeing, you're not able to see past the tip of your nose when you look at Christian Watson and say, well, the production isn't there. Yeah, but the production from Romeo Dobbs, a lot of that was Christian Watson. You're using him to set up other things. You're using the run to set up other things. You're running this, this play here, which was unsuccessful, so that next time you can run a play action off of it and show him a completely different look. So when they bite on it, we can do something else and we can get our 20, 30 yard strike. But you checked out of that play, so we didn't run that play, so now we can't set it up for later. So the explosion on offense, the reason this offense is significantly better than last year, it's not just because of a broken thumb. The reason the entire offense looks cohesive, it looks dangerous, it's, it's just consistent. 
is because Matt LaFleur is able to do what he's been trying to do for a long time. He's able to build entire four-quarter game plans. He's able to use the first quarter to set up the third quarter. And as far as like, you know, well, Jordan makes checks at the line too or whatever, there's a difference between just, you know, two plays being called and checking out of one to go to the other and calling a completely different play. Like just just telling your wide receivers individually what routes to run with your hand signals and everything. That's why Adam Stenovich is saying he had no idea what was even called. They know what Jordan is doing. He's either going to run the play or he's going to tap his helmet and they're going to run the other play. Oh boy, and that happened fast. Um, Justina Anderson just said, barring a snag in negotiations or a future development, still have to get a signature, I'm expecting Bill Belichick to become the next head coach at the NFC South Atlanta Falcons. His previous rapport with Falcon CEO Rich McKay creates a comf- comfort and he can't mimic in other buildings, blah, 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 blah. She's expecting that to be a thing. So that's pretty crazy. In other controversial news, um, we've got uh, more players attacking PFF, which, you know, again, the, the, the easy, lazy way out, out of this is to say, well, players would know. So PFF is stupid. Like, I'm, I'm super smart because I think PFF is stupid. I'm like, freaking, okay, whatever. So um, PFF released uh, a few days ago, highest graded quarterbacks in wildcard weekend. Jordan Love, 92.5. Matt Stafford, 88.5. Josh Allen, 88. Pat Mahomes, 88. J.J. Watt quote tweeted that, and he said, this is what happens when you try to grade football players with an algorithm. C.J. Stroud's performance was graded, in quotes, a 77.8, and people still treat this stuff as gospel. And then the slapping your forehead emoji. All right, so on its face, what J.J. Watt said is dumb. First of all, he didn't say anything as to why it should be higher than a 77.8. And the the go-to is, well, watch the film. Well, first of all, you didn't watch, maybe J.J. Watt did, but 98% of the people saying that didn't watch the film. So what are they basing that on? The very basic statistics. Completion percentage, yards, touchdowns, interceptions. That's what they're basing it on. So in reality, what they're saying is your grades don't line up with very basic statistics, therefore you're stupid. Now, if that's not what you're saying, fine, but give me something to go off of because I know PFF uses advanced analytics. I know they're watching every single snap of every single play. I don't know what you did, and you didn't say anything about what you did. Furthermore, he says, this is what happens when you try to grade football players with an algorithm. What does that mean? How should you grade football players? Well, you grade them by watching the tape, right? PFF does watch the tape. What is the definition of an algorithm? Well, I looked it up just to make sure I, you know, get the exact right definition. A process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. Well, it's not really done by a computer, although maybe the calculations at the end are, the inputs are not. And we could just get rid of other problem-solving operations. Let's just look at the beginning. A process or set of rules to be followed in calculations. So are you saying that there should not be a process when you grade players? So when you're watching tape, there should be no process. It should be like, what, a gut feeling? An algorithm is just a set of rules that you follow so that there is a consistent, coherent process system being followed that can be applied across teams, across eras, and, and for the sake of consistency and accuracy. If you're not using an algorithm, what should you be using? This is why I said, first of all, I have no issue with watching the tape because that's what PFF does. But there has to be some level of, like if you're watching the tape, quote unquote, but you're not actually you know, charting. And when I mean charting, I don't just mean arbitrarily like writing down whatever. I mean, you've, you've, and, and I, I'm not doing this. I don't know really too many people that are doing this. I mean, having a system by which 
you know going in how your grades work. For example, if you want to set up like PFF does, I think a, a essentially a what eight point scale because I think it's two to negative two at half point increments, right? Something like that. Okay, but you need to be very specific about what kind of plays constitute a 0.5, a 1, a 1.5, and a 2, as well as a negative 0.5, a negative 1, a negative 1.5, and a negative 2. You have to be very specific because there are a lot of different scenarios. There are a lot of different things that can happen just from a quarterback standpoint. You've got time in the pocket. You've got pressure. You've got, are you, are you uh, standing mobile or standing still in the pocket? Are you, are you rolling to your left or to your right? Are your feet planted when you throw the ball? How covered is the wide receiver? How accurate was the pass? Was it thrown directly on target? Was it catchable but not on target? Was it uncatchable? What area of the person's body was it caught? Was the receiver running when he caught it or was he standing still, which would be an easier pass? Again, was there somebody, was there a defender right there and you threw it away from the defender? Are you saying we shouldn't do this? We should not have a process or set of rules to be followed when you, when you grade people? This, this is so stupid. But people are going to eat this up, man. People are going to see what J.J., and they want to be super smart, right? I'm on J.J. Watt's side because he's a super smart football player, and PFF is a joke, and people that believe it are idiots. And, and again, first comment underneath it from a guy named Drew. He says, one got a 92.5, the other got a 77.8. And what, did, what does it say below? It shows completions and attempts, passing yards, touchdowns, and passer rating. And it shows that they're the same. So... <laughs> It's, it's unbelievable that it's like we're trying to pretend that what, we're, what we believe in is above PFF. But in reality, what we're, what we're choosing to believe in is below PFF. It's based on very shallow statistics. But, of course, because J.J. Uh, Watt left himself exposed to um, sound kind of, you know, he, he didn't really provide anything other than say some nonsense sentences, PFF could very easily come back and explain their grades, which, of course, as far as I can tell, J.J. Watt has not had anything to say to respond to this. Here is the reason for the differences in their grades, despite the very shallow statistics being almost identical. What are the differences here? I think the biggest the biggest differences would be, starting with C.J. Stroud had a turnover-worthy play in there. Jordan Love did not. We had a dropped interception. Pretty bad decision by Stroud. I think it was early in the game. They also, they both had two big-time throws, so there's not a... Right. A huge difference there. I would say that the biggest difference is two of Stroud's three touchdowns were, you know, beyond his control. We had a screen pass and we had a 76, 77 yard touchdown on a, you know, wide open pass in the flat. So are those the same things? Should we just disregard context for the sake of very basic, shallow statistics? Now, you can say you would do things differently, but that's not going to change anything. You would come up with a different system. Your grades would piss people off because it wouldn't come out to be the exact same thing. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have what, what fans demand, and you would be called a fraud because it doesn't match up with shallow statistics because people apparently hate context unless it supports what they want. Somebody else posted a clip of, well, J.J. Watt said that he, his coaches have actually put coaching grades right next to PFF grades and they don't match up. What I've also always said consistently, and I think PFF would acknowledge this, Number one, I mean, the things that they're looking for are different. But number two, PFF has no insight into what play was called. And you could say, well, that's a fatal flaw. Okay, so it's very simple. The coach's grades are exactly what you'd want to know, but we don't have access to that. So what good is that to me? It's not. What is better than PFF grades that I have access to? 
What is it? Give me an option. And you can, you can say, well, watch the tilt. Why, why would I watch it myself? Number one, I don't have to. Number two, I'm not going to build a 300-page booklet like PFF did to describe exactly how all these things are graded, just for the sake of consistency. On top of I have to watch every single snap of every single player just so that I can do all the work that PFF is already doing for me. Oh, and by the way, they're not just grading Packers. They're grading every single player that on every single snap in the entire NFL. So I'm, I, I'm so happy for you that you, you want to take the, the easiest path to making yourself sound like a genius, which is the most obnoxious thing in the world. People that, that really are just not very intelligent but want to sound intelligent by just pretending that they're smart enough to know that everything is fake and everything's a big conspiracy and everything's, well, I'm smart enough to know that that's fake. I'm smart enough to know that that's not real. I'm smart enough to know that that's, that's dumb. Everybody knows that's dumb. No, it's not dumb. You're dumb. <laughs> And I know that because I can give you more information about Jordan Love and C.J. Stroud than you can give me about them. You can tell me about completion percentage, touchdowns, interceptions, and passer rating. I couldn't give a crap about that because the context behind that is way more significant. How much pressure did they face? How did they do while under pressure? What, what is the situation behind their touchdowns? How about turnover? turnovers are great? What about turnover-worthy play? There, there, I saw somebody talking about, um, I forgot who it was. I think they were talking about Brock Purdy, and they're like, well, you know, his, his worst game was uh, that game against Cleveland. He threw four interceptions. And I looked at PFF, and PFF had it as his third worst game. Well, how could you say it's his third worst game? He threw four picks in that game. Okay, well, I go look at his turnover-worthy plays. He only had two, which would tell you what? Usually, you have less turnovers than turnover-worthy plays. In this case, he had double the amount of turnovers as he had turnover-worthy plays which means at least two of them were not his fault. So the four interceptions is not a necessarily a critique on how well the quarterback played. It's a thing that happened. He had other games where he graded out worse, where he had three turnover-worthy plays, but I think only one turnover in that game, because of the three that he threw at a defender, only one was caught. I couldn't give a crap about the raw, basic statistics. So is PFF giving me a perfect picture? No. Is it giving me a significantly better picture than anybody else on planet Earth can give me? Yes. And to sit around with this arrogant attitude about they're, they're so stupid because our coaches were able to grade better than PFF. Well, no kidding, moron. You know what the play is that's called. What are you advocating that I do? Disregard PFF and do what? Should I call up your coach and ask him for the grades? Is he going to give them to me? No. Then shut the hell up. You freaking condescending douchebag. Sorry, I try to be as family-friendly as I can, but sometimes there just aren't words that can articulate what I want to say that are more polite than that, so I apologize. Oh boy, we got so much to get through here. Uh, let's take a break. I'm going to try to fly through. We're going to get a little bit of the 49ers stuff done. I, I promise you we're going to start touching on it, but uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time to get there. We'll get there on the other side of the break. By the way, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy is where you can support the podcast or hit me up on Venmo, Packernet Podcast, if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. So I saw an interesting stat that was brought up here. Um, it's uh, Total Access Live. Not not our Total Access, a different one. Um, Zacher Packer 10-8 over Zach S. Smith 59 on Twitter. He posted a screenshot of this, but it's comparing Rodgers' 2010 run to Jordan Love's 2023 run. And I've already said, like, the most comparable season right now, if you look at how Jordan Love is doing, is around the 2010-ish season. Um, 
And this just kind of backs that up. Aaron Rodgers and Jordan Love, final eight games of the regular season and wild card round. Both quarterbacks were 7-2. and two. Completion percentage, Rodgers 67.4, Jordan 70.7, which, by the way, 67.4 is a very good completion percentage. Jordan at 70.7 is the dumbest freaking thing ever, especially since he started off as one of the most inaccurate quarterbacks. I, I, I don't understand what he's doing right now. Passing yards, Rodgers 251, Jordan 269. Touchdown to interception, one of the things Rodgers is one of the greatest of all time. He was 19-2, and two, which is elite. Jordan, 21-1. and one. Passer rating, Rodgers 114.1, Jordan 116.6 right now. Um, again, that I mean, th- there is a 2010 vibe to this. We've already talked about, you know, beating the, you know, NFC East football team first. It was Eagles in 2010, it's Cowboys this year. In the wild card, right? What do we do next? We went up against the number one seed, dominant football team. There was no chance we were going to beat them. And freaking blew them out. That was the the forty or the, excuse me the the Falcons. Then this time we're playing the 49ers. After that we played the Bears, which in this case would be the Lions, and then there was an AFC North team, which would in this case be the Baltimore Ravens as opposed to the Steelers. But the parallels there, right? The 2010 season you're looking at it, and granted it was a better football team, especially when you look at the defense. Although the defense is playing better now, but it was one of those things where you just I mean, I, I don't know that I really believed it until we beat the Falcons. It was kind, it was, it was similar to what we did against Dallas this year, but that was the moment you were like, holy crap, dude, we, we actually can win this. And like I said, by the time we got to the Super Bowl, I, I had a 100% belief we were going to win that game. I don't think I've ever been so confident in a Packers team in my life. It was like, the, it just was such an unbelievable run that it felt like it's impossible that we can do all this and lose. Like fate, I'm, I'm, I'm not a genuine believer in the whole fate thing. But it just, it just was there. I mean, it just, it's a hundred percent. It had to be a thing. So, again, man, we we've been doing this all year, just comparing and comparing and comparing, and the and the way that everything lines up is is pretty remarkable. Um, I'm not saying I'm I'm a hundred percent all in that we're going to win a Super Bowl at this point, but if we beat the 49ers, I just, it's it's going to be one of those things where it's like I just can't imagine. Final thing I wanted to talk about before we move on to the 49ers, um, this via Matt Schneidman. Devontae Wyatt on Brock Purdy, quote, When D linemen just get pressure into him, he's always throwing off, or it's behind them, or it's overthrown or short. When you get pressure on him, it's a guarantee we'll get a turnover. First of all, um, I mean, I, I like the confidence and all. I don't like giving the 49ers fuel. I really don't. I mean, the 49ers have done a great job of basically just complimenting the crap out of the Packers. I feel like the Packers need to focus on doing that. And so, look, I I don't think it was like a cocky, malicious thing. I think he's just answering a question in a way in which he was taught. I mean, this is what the coaches are telling him. The coaches have been doing all the scouting. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer. I've tried to look into this a little bit. I think one of the, the major problems is people are saying this is a stupid comment because he is like the best quarterback under pressure. And there's a decent amount to back that up. I mean, if you just look at the uh, PFF grades under pressure, Brock Purdy is 11th, um, which isn't you know the greatest in the world, but he has a 62.2 PFF grade. He has a 58.2 passing grade, which is uh, tied for 10th with Matt Stafford. There's a, there's a couple things here, though. Number one... It seems relatively clear to me, although he probably overstated his case, but it seems relatively clear to me that what he was talking about was interior pressure. And I say that because he literally said that. Now, it doesn't have to be taken that way because he said D-lineman. 
you could be talking about the entire defensive front, but I think in the particular scheme that we have, defensive linemen, he's talking about interior guys. Maybe in like a 4-3, D lineman is colloquially meant to be the edge guys as well, but generally not in a base 3-4 system. And as a defensive tackle, I think he's speaking on behalf of the defensive tackle, saying that we need to get pressure because he is not very good when there's pressure. So looking at pressure as a whole, which can come from the edge, it can come from the corners, it could come from the linebackers, is different than talking about defensive tackle pressure, which is primarily interior pressure, which is an entirely different thing. It's possible that he's the type of guy that when pressure comes off the edge does a very good job, similar to what you saw from like Tom Brady, where you can step up in the pocket and still get the ball out and those types of things. I did go over to PFF to try to get a, see if I can tweak this a little bit. I can't get interior pressure, but I I took, for example, adjusted net yards per attempt. And Brock Purdy ranks pretty high almost any way that you want to do it. Now, um, obviously I looked at under pressure. He's very good. And again, I just used adjusted net yards per attempt. I tried to be pretty consistent and um, he ranks near the top. Then I looked at it as, uh, uh, was he in the pocket or not? In other words, was he forced to break the pocket? He gets a little worse if he has to break the pocket. And then finally, I did broken play. In other words, we're in scramble drill or whatever. And he dropped down to, still not bad. I've I've only got 22 quarterbacks based on how many pass attempts, but whatever. Um, Actually, you know what? It is bad. He drops to 19th out of 22. So when the more things break down, the worse he gets. And, and you could say, well, that's intuitive, but it's not because it's it's not he gets worse, period. It's he gets worse in relation to everybody else. So when you look at it, all the different, like, for example, Josh Allen ranks fourth when he's pressured and has to break the pocket and the play breaks down. Brock Purdy is not very good in those situations. And that that makes sense when you're talking about the quote-unquote system quarterback, which is another thing that I think is kind of stupid. That whole Bosa thing where it was like, oh, he called him a system quarterback. First of all, everybody's a system quarterback. Every quarterback operates within a system. I think what people mean when they say system quarterback is that you kind of suck in that you couldn't play in a different system and you couldn't do what Rodgers does where he goes to the line and he, he adjusts all these things. He, he couldn't be a play caller in and of himself. He goes out and he essentially does what he's told. But I, I think for the most part, there's really nothing wrong with any of that. Again, Brock Purdy is arguably the best quarterback this year. So if quote-unquote system quarterback is what you're going to use to attack him, that's kind of stupid. Because guess what? He can go to th- any one of the other 31 teams. They also have systems. But anyways, the other final point that I wanted to bring up, though, is... You know, Brock Purdy starts to drop quite a bit in all these things, but you know who's better? In fact, who's number one in this category when you look at under pressure, breaks the pocket, broken play? Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott was number one. Brock Purdy, 19th. And and by the way, the reason I said broke the pocket is because I'm assuming it's um, interior pressure, which, you know, if it's, you know, edge pressure, you can maybe step up in the pocket. So I wanted to eliminate that. Um, and again, even if, if I just get rid of broken play, he goes up pretty significantly. So if he's able to break the pocket and still um, play within structure, he, he jumps all the way up to fifth. But still, Dak Prescott is number two. So, I mean, it, it just kind of depends. Like, he's, he's saying the guy falls apart and everything's terrible and you're guaranteed to get a pick. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Certainly doesn't seem that way. He has an interception percentage of 2.9%. Um, which is, you know, of this group, he would rank, I guess, 25th out of 38. Some of these guys didn't play a ton. That's not, actually, that's not true. I don't know. Look, I, 
again, number one, I don't like giving them bulletin board material. So I would just tell the players from now on, like, look, let's keep what we talk about in here to ourselves. And when they ask about other players, just be like, yeah, Brock Purdy's amazing. He's so good. It's great. But I think he was just asked a question and he just regurgitated what his coaches told him. And I think that that's what they told him. And and part of this too is like getting your own players hyped. Did he overstate his case? Yeah, probably because that's what the coaches did. You got the, the, the D-line coach, Jerry Montgomery, and they're talking about, you know, we got to do our job. We got to get in there because when we get pressure on this guy, we can really fluster him. You know, the, the maybe off the edge isn't as important. We have to be able to get interior pressure because when we do, the guy falls apart and I guarantee you we're going to get a pick. I mean, that's just the coach putting like bulletin board material in the locker room. But that's stuff that doesn't necessarily need to get out, I guess, would be kind of my thought on that whole drama. All right, finally, let's let's rip through real quick the basics of the, um, uh, as I type and try to talk at the same time, the basics of the 49ers. And then we'll kind of go in depth starting tomorrow. Um, 12 and 5 under Kyle Shanahan, as you know. Very, very weird team in that, through the first five weeks, and I had mentioned this on the podcast, it was like one of the best football teams ever. It's just it nobody had ever done what they they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 30 to 7, the Rams 30 to 23, the Giants 30 to 12, the Cardinals 35-16, and the Cowboys 42 to 10. So they scored 30, 30, 30, 35, and 42. And the defense gave up 7, 23, 12, 16, and 10. Just absolutely elite domination. Then for whatever reason, and I will dig more into this to try to see if there's an answer but not today. They fell off a cliff and kind of just sucked. They scored 17, 17, and 17 after scoring at least 30 for the first five weeks, and they allowed 19, 21, and 31. They lost all three games, so they won five elite performance. Then they fell off and lost three in a row to the Browns, the Vikings, and the Bengals. Then they had a bye week, and they come back real strong. Win against the Jaguars, win against the Buccaneers, win against the Seahawks, win against the Eagles, win against the Seahawks, win against the Cardinals. Now, how many really good teams did they play? I mean, how many playoff teams did they play? They played Dallas and beat them 42-10, right? That that was dominant. They beat the Rams, but the Rams didn't really pick it up until midseason, so they weren't very good. Um, they beat the Buccaneers 27-14. That's kind of a thing. Seahawks are not good. The Eagles had fallen apart at this point. The Seahawks, again, are not good, and the Arizona Cardinals are not good. But still, win, 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 win. Then down the stretch, you get Baltimore, and they lost 33-19. Then they beat Washington, who sucks. Then they played the Rams after they had kind of picked things up, and they lost 21-20. to Now, yes, they did bench some people. They probably win if they didn't. But you end the season with loss, win, loss, bye week. We'll get into that in a second, but just finishing up for the season, third in points, uh, four, third in points against, offensively and defensively. Number one passing team in net yards per attempt. Number five defensively in net yards per attempt. Rushing their fourth, 4.8 yards per attempt. Defensively, their 14th, kind of middle of the pack, kind of where Dallas was, to be honest, which is a good thing. They were also number two in score percentage. Number five in average starting field position. Fourth in average time per drive. Number one in net yards per drive. And number one in average points scored per drive. That's pretty good. Defensively, not quite as good. They were 20th in scores ending in a drive. Um, one Number one in average starting field position, which is more of a special teams thing. 23rd in average time per drive. 27th in plays per drive. 14th in yards per drive. 9th in points scored per drive. So it feels like a bend, don't break kind of team. Run, run for, you know, get a lot of yards. Take a lot of time. Don't really score a lot of points. So efficiency down in their side of the field is going to be important. Come away with points. All right, final thing now. I want to play this clip here. Um, 
This is Kay Adams and on Up and Adams talking to Kurt Bankert about the whole rest thing. Here's what they had to say. Here, you know, here's the truth. The Bad Ravens loss, a bounce back against the Mech Commanders, yeah. and then two weeks off. How much does it matter? I think it matters a lot. And I was I was going through this last night, like looking at who have they played. And when's the last time the Niners have won a meaningful game? Thank you. Or a game that like gave them a little bit of a sweat. It's been over a month, right? Like probably seven weeks, almost two months. And I'm looking at it. The Packers have played playoff games essentially for the last five weeks. Right. Like every single week, if they lost, they would not have been in the playoffs or would have been kicked out. So I just think like when the playoffs start, everything resets and the Packers could not really be playing much better. They didn't really give up points to the Cowboys until they put their backups in and really weren't like playing aggressively, trying to play safe and not get hurt. So like as far as meaningful football goes, the Packers have played a lot more really well in the recent weeks. So I don't know. I just this this game feels really weird. Like <laughs> 49ers should win. They have the better roster. They have the better. They, they have it all better. But the Packers. Here. All right. So I wanted to kind of look into this a little bit. First of all, the rest thing. We always talk about, well, I think it, I think this and I feel like this and it's all thoughts and feelings. And it's like, you know, we can just look this up, right? Teams that come off a bye week. And I was kind of surprised by this answer, but you got to understand, I mean, th- these are the better teams, right? If you if you have a bye, that means you're the number one seed. Or if you go back a little further, which I don't even, you know, you can go back to number one or number two seed or whatever, but you're, you're a top team. So how often does that top team win coming off a bye week? 57.7% of the time. How often do they cover the spread? 49.5% of the time. It's a lot closer to 50-50 than I expected when you got like the worst team going up against the best team on the road for a rested team, you know? Now, it's still above average. You say, well, they technically, uh, you know, they set their starters. Yeah, but that happens all the time. That's more or less baked into the numbers. It's a common thing. So I don't need to look up two bye weeks because that's kind of silly. And also doesn't exist. But just on its face, teams that have that bye, they win a little over 50% of the time. And you can take that any which way you want. You can say, well, I guess it's not true that the, the rest really helps. Or you can look at it and say, well, that's actually a relatively known, low number considering you know, those are the better teams. It's pretty close to 50-50. It gets kind of weird from there, though, um, because you can add on to this. So we know it's a playoff team that had a bye, but that's not the full story. The Packers are nine and a half point underdogs. If you look at previous playoff games in which it was exactly nine and a half points, the and there's not very many, but the home team has won 42.9% of the time and covers the spread just 28.6% of the time. The examples include 2005 Eagles-Vikings. Eagles won 27-14. Then you had Colts-Steelers, in which the Colts lost. You had Panthers-Cardinals, and the Panthers lost 33-13. Got demolished. Patriots-Jets in 2011, and the Jets won 28-21. You had Patriots-Texans. Patriots won and covered. You had Ravens-Titans. Ravens got blown out 28-12. And then you had Chiefs, Jaguars, Chiefs won 27 to 20. So it was win, loss, 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 win, loss, win. And two of those three covered the spread. So only two out of what, seven games, they covered the spread. Three out of seven, they won. But I figure it's too small of a sample size. So let's back that out a little bit and look at just seven point dogs or worse. In this case, seven-point favorites for the 49ers. They win 73% of the time, cover the spread 42% of the time. 
So that all seems incredibly positive, but I want to add one more final thing, and I, I wish I could add all of this together. I'm having a hard time with it. But I just want to point out one thing, and that is, again, the San Francisco 49ers did not end on a high note. If you look at the Packers compared to the 49ers and where their point differential is, the 49ers have a positive point differential of two, which means they scored two more points than they gave away in the last three weeks against the Ravens, Commanders, and Rams. The Packers, I believe, had a 48 point differential the last three weeks. Let's just look at 2023 for a second as far as point differential over the last three weeks, how every team finished the season. And yes, three weeks is relatively arbitrary, but that's what I'm going with. The San Francisco 49ers had the third worst point differential to end the season. The other two teams who had a worse point differential were the Miami Dolphins, who had a negative 42 point differential. They got blown out. And the Philadelphia Eagles with a negative 13 point differential, they got blown out. And I do think it's relevant because, I mean, the point differential really demonstrates how powerful San Francisco is. But it's the exact reason San Francisco is so dominant that you look at their recent success as being somewhat negative. For example, the if you look at point differential, Baltimore is the most dominant team, then San Francisco, then Dallas, then Buffalo, then Kansas City, then Miami. I mean, every, anybody that looked at that list would say, yeah, that seems about right. You don't have to 100% agree, but I mean, it, it's a very good metric. So if you apply that exact metric to how the teams have been in the very recent past, the Packers are one of the best teams in the entire NFL, and San Francisco is one of the worst. Now, maybe it's a little unfair because, again, they played Baltimore, who's very good, and one of the games they sat their starters and all that stuff, but it's not a good sign. Look at some of the other teams who had similar problems. And if you look at those final three games, there were four teams that went 3-0. and There was Pittsburgh, who's now out. Green Bay, Buffalo, and the Rams, who are also out. So Buffalo and Green Bay are the only teams that are 4-0 right now. And based on that, in that stretch, Baltimore was number one, Pittsburgh number two, Green Bay number three. That puts Green Bay now at number two. However, that doesn't even include this last game, where the Packers hung 48 points on Dallas. If you include that, that puts the Packers at number one in terms of point differential over the last four weeks. And with Miami and San Francisco being knocked out of the playoffs, that puts San Francisco in dead last. So you got the number one team against the dead last team. Now, that's just one way to look at it. There's a lot of other ways, but it is worth noting. As was said before, when is the last time San Francisco won a meaningful game? And you could say, yeah, but they dominate. That's the same thing Dallas does. Dallas beats bad opponents by 40 points. Point differential was never the issue. The, the question is, when was the last time you beat the crap out of a team that was a meaningful game that was a really, really good team. The Rams, you lost. Washington is trash. The Ravens beat the crap out of you. The Cardinals are terrible. The Seattle Seahawks ended the season on a, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. They lost six of their last 10 games. So nope, that's not a very good football team. The Eagles, we know how much of a downward spiral they were on. Seahawks, again, as you just said, terrible down the stretch. They beat the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers didn't turn it on until week 13. They beat them week 11. By the time they played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Buccaneers were, um, after their bye in, in week five, one and four. That's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers team that they played. They didn't go on their win streak again until week 13. They beat the Jaguars week 10. That was right after their bye week. From week 10 through week 18, you know what the Jaguars record was? Three and six. Terrible football team. Then they had their bye. Prior to that, they lost to the Bengals. They lost to the Vikings. They lost to the Browns. They, they obliterated the Cowboys, which is relatively impressive. 
beat them 42 to 10. It is worth noting, however, two weeks prior to that, the Arizona Cardinals beat Dallas 28 to 16. Prior to that, they beat the Cardinals, who are trash, the Giants, who are garbage, the Rams, who didn't go on their win streak until week 11, beat them by seven points. They went on to lose one, two, three, four, five of their next seven games. And you beat the Steelers 30 to seven in week one. And the Steelers, I mean, they ended 10 and seven. They're fine. It wasn't really in like a bad patch. They didn't really have a bad patch, maybe kind of mid late season. Maybe that's the most impressive, but that's also week one. That's when crazy, stupid stuff like that happens. So, I mean, I, I'm just saying, and it, listen, this is true of everybody because most teams are bad, but that's worth noting. How many teams have the 49ers played that are playing as well as the Green Bay Packers are playing right now? The answer is zero. Zero. Find me the team that was as hot as the Green Bay Packers. 4-0 with nearly a 50-point differential, number one quarterback in the NFL, number one offense in the NFL. Have the 49ers ever played this? No. Never. Now, have the Packers played a team as good as the 49ers? No, probably not. But let's just be very, very clear about what we're talking about. Over the last four weeks, which is about a quarter of a season, the Packers are significantly better than the 49ers are. And the only good team the 49ers played, they got the living crap beat out of them. The good team that the Packers played, they beat the crap out of. And that Ravens game was in San Francisco. The Packers played Dallas in Dallas. Anyways, I'm going to get out of here. Hopefully that uh, gave you a little bit more hope, excitement, optimism. I think more than anything, I want to come into this understanding that maybe the Packers shouldn't be seen quite as much as underdogs as they're being seen. As though there is this inept, lucky, not quite ready football team, right Rob? A year away from winning these types of games or whatever. Going up against a truly elite powerhouse 49ers team. That's the narrative, and I don't necessarily think it's the right one. But you guys have a good rest of your day. I will talk to you tonight, tomorrow, whatever. Have a good one. Goodbye. Goodbye.